0: Letter 19 of Letters from England, 1846–1849, to by Elizabeth Davis Fancroft. Read for into the public domain. Letter to W. D. B. and A. B. London, May twenty fourth, 1847. My dear sons, on Friday we both went to see the Palace of Hampton Court with my dear good Miss Murray, Mr. Winthrop, and son, and Louise. On our arrival we found to our great vexation that Friday was the only day in the week in which visitors were not admitted, and that we must content ourselves with seeing the grounds, and go back without a glimpse of its noble galleries of pictures. Fortunately for us, Miss Murray had several friends among the persons to whom the Queen has assigned apartments in the vast edifice, and they willingly yielded their approbation of our admission, if she could possibly win over Mrs. Grundy, the housekeeper. This name sounded rather inauspicious, but Mr. Winthrop suggested that there might be a Felix to qualify it, and so, in this case, it turned out. Mrs. Grundy asserted that such a thing had never been done, that it was a very dangerous precedent, etc., but in the end the weight of a maid of honour and a foreign minister prevailed, and we saw everything to much greater advantage than if we had had one hundred and fifty persons following on, as Mr. Winthrop says he had the other day at Windsor Castle." On our way home we met Lady Byron with her pretty little carriage and ponies. She alighted and we did the same, and had quite a pleasant little interview in the dusty road. Sunday, May thirtieth. Your father left town on Monday. He did not return until the 27th, the morning of the Queen's birthday drawing-room. On that occasion I went dressed in white mourning. It was a petticoat of white crepe flounced to the waist with the edges notched. A train of white glass trimmed with a ruche of white crepe a wreath and bouquet of white lilacs, without any green, as green is not used in mourning. The array of diamonds on this occasion was magnificent in the highest degree, and everybody was in their most splendid array. The next evening there was a concert at the palace, at which Jenny Lind, Greasy, Alboni, Mario, and Tamburini sang. I went dressed in a deep black dress and enjoyed the music highly. Seats were placed in rows in the concert-room, and one sat quietly as if in church. At the end of the first part, the royal family, with their royal guests, the Grand Duke Constantine of Russia, and the Grand Duke and Duchess of Saxe-Weimar, went to the grand dining-room and supped by themselves, with their sweets, while another elegant refreshment-table was spread in another apartment for the other guests. Jenny Lind a little disappointed me, I must confess, but they tell me that her songs were not adapted on that evening to the display of her voice." On Sunday evening your father dined with Baron Brunau, the Russian minister, to meet the Grand Duke Constantine. It so happened that the Grand Duke and Duchess of Saxe-Weimar appointed an audience to Baron and Baroness Brunau at seven, and they had not returned at half-past seven, when the Grand Duke and their other guests arrived. The Baroness immediately advanced to the Grand Duke and sunk on her knees before him, asking pardon in Russian. He begged her to rise, but she remained in the attitude of deep humiliation, until the grand duke sunk also on his knees and gently raised her and then kissed her on the cheek-a privilege, you know, of royalty. On Monday evening we both went to a concert at Mr. Hudson's, the great railway king, who has just made an immense fortune from railway stops and is now desirous to get into society. These things are managed in a curious way here. A nouveau riche gets several ladies of fashion to patronize their entertainment and invite all the guests. Our invitation was from Lady Park, who wrote me two notes about it, saying that she would be happy to meet me at Mrs. Hudson's splendid mansion, where there would be the best music and society of London, and true enough there was the Duke of Wellington and all the world. Lady Park stood at the entrance of the splendid suite of rooms to receive the guests and introduce them to their host and hostess. On Tuesday morning I got a note from Mr. Elliot Warburton, brother of Hakalaga, to come to his room at two o'clock and look at some drawings. "'To our surprise we find quite a party seated at lunch, and a collection of many agreeable persons, and some lions and lionesses. There was Lord Ross, the great astronomer, Baroness Rothschild, a lovely Jewess, Miss Strickland, the authoress of the Queens of England, Aothen, and many more. Mr. Polk, charge at Naples, and brother of the President, dined with us, and Miss Murray, and in the evening came Mr. and Mrs. McLean; he a son of Judge McLean of Ohio.' June seventeenth, On Friday evening we went to the Queen's Ball, and for the first time saw Her Majesty dance, which she does very well, and so does the Duchess of Sutherland, grandmother though she be. On Monday evening we went to a concert given to the Queen by the Duke of Wellington at Apsley House. This was an occasion not to be forgotten, but I cannot describe it. On Tuesday I went for the first time to hear a debate upon the Portugal interference in the House of Lords, It brought out all the leaders, and I was so fortunate as to hear a most powerful speech from Lord Stanley, one from Lord Lansdowne in defence of the ministry, and one from the Duke of Wellington, who on this occasion sided with the ministers. On Wednesday was the great fete given by the Duchess of Sutherland to the Queen. It was like a chapter of a fairy tale. Persons from all the courts of Europe who were there told us that nowhere in Europe was there anything as fine as the hall and grand staircase where the Duchess received her guests it exceeded my utmost conceptions of magnificence and beauty. The vast size of the apartment, the vaulted ceilings, the arabesque ornaments, the fine pictures, the profusion of flowers, the music, the flourish of trumpets, as the queen passed backward and forward, the superb dresses and diamonds of the women, the party-colored full dress of the gentlemen all contributed to make up a scene not to be forgotten. The queen's ball was not to be compared to it. So much more effective is Stafford House than Buckingham Palace. We were fortunate to be present there, for Stafford House is not opened in this way but once in a year or two, and the Duke's health is now so very uncertain that it may be many years before it happens again. He was not present the other evening. End of letter nineteen. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information please visit libriVox.org. Letter twenty of Letters from England, eighteen forty six to eighteen forty nine, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for into the public domain. Letter to Mr. and Mrs. I.P.D. My dear uncle and aunt. London, june twentieth, eighteen forty seven. On the nineteenth we breakfasted with Lady Byron and my friend Miss Murray at Mr. Rogers's. He and Lady Byron had not met for many, many years and their renewal of friendship was very interesting to witness. Mr. Rogers told me that he first introduced her to Lord Byron. After breakfast he had been repeating some lines of poetry which he thought fine, when he suddenly exclaimed, but there is a bit of American prose which I think had more poetry in it than almost any modern verse. He then repeated, I should think, more than a page from Dana's two years before the mast, describing the falling overboard of one of the crew, and the effect it produced, not only at the moment, but for some time afterward. I wondered at his memory, which enabled him to recite so beautifully a long prose passage, so much more difficult than verse. Several of those present, with whom the book was a favorite, were so glad to hear from me that it was as true as interesting, for they had regarded it as partly a work of imagination. Lady Byron had told Mr. Rogers when she came in that Lady Lovelace, her daughter Ada, wished also to pay him a visit and would come after breakfast to join us for half an hour. She also had not seen Rogers, I believe, ever. Lady Lovelace joined us soon after breakfast, and as we were speaking of the enchantment of Stafford House on Wednesday evening, Mr. Rogers proposed to go over it and see its fine pictures by daylight. He immediately went himself by a short back passage through the park to ask permission, and returned with all the eagerness and gallantry of a young man to say that he had obtained it. We thus had an opportunity of seeing, in the most leisurely way and in the most delightful society, the fine pictures and noble apartments of Stafford House again. On Tuesday Mr. Hallam took us to the British Museum, and, being a director, he could enter on a private day, when we were not annoyed by a crowd, and, moreover, we had the advantage of the best interpreters and guides. We did not even enter the library, which requires a day by itself, but confined ourselves to the antiquity rooms. As I entered the room, devoted to the Elgin marbles, the works of the divine Phidias, I stepped with awe, as if entering a temple, and the secretary, who was by my side, observing it, told me that the Grand Duke Constantine, when he came a few days before, made as he entered a most profound and reverential bow. This was one of my most delightful mornings, and I left the antiquities with a stronger desire to see them again than before I had seen them at all. Sunday, June 27th I went on Wednesday to dine at Lord Monteagle's to meet Father Matthew, and the Archbishop of Dublin, Dr. Watley, also dined there. Father Matthew spoke with great interest of America and of American liberality, and is very anxious to go to our country. He saw Mr. Forbes at Cork and spoke of him with great regard. On Saturday Mr. Bancroft went to the palace to see the King of the Belgians, with the rest of the diplomatic corps. After his return we went to Westminster Hall to see the prize-pictures, as Lord Lansdowne had sent us tickets for the private view. The Commission of Fine Arts have offered prizes for the best historical pictures that may serve to adorn the new Houses of Parliament, and the pictures of this collection were all painted with that view. One of those which have received a prize is John Robinson, bestowing his farewell blessing upon the pilgrims at Leyden, which is very pleasing. It was, to me, like a friend in a strange country, and I lingered over it the longest. July 2nd. Wednesday evening we went to Lady Duff Gordon's, who is the daughter of Mrs. Austin, where was a most agreeable party, and, among others, Anderson, the Danish poet-author of The Improvisateur. He has a most striking poetical physiognomy, but, as he talked only German or bad French, I left him to Mr. Bancroft in the conversation way. The next morning, before nine o'clock, we were told that Mr. Rogers, the poet, was downstairs. I could not imagine what had brought him out so early, but found that Moore, the poet, had come to town and would stay but a day, and we must go that very morning and breakfast with him at ten o'clock. We went and found a delightful circle. I sat between Moore and Rogers, who was in his very best humor. Moore is but a wreck, but a most interesting one. End of Letter 20 Read by Sibella Denton All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter Twenty-One of Letters from England, 1846-1849, to by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to Mr. and Mrs. I. P. D. Nunham Park, July twenty-seventh, 1847. My dear uncle and aunt, I must go back to the day when my last letters were dispatched, as my life since has been full of interest. On Monday evening, the 19th, we went to the French play to see Rachel in Phaedra. She far surpassed my imagination in the expression of all the powerful passions. On Tuesday Mr. Bancroft went down to hear Lord John make a speech to his constituents in the city, while I went to see Mrs. Burdett Coutts lay the cornerstone of the church which the Bishop of London has permitted her to build, to use her own expression in her note to me. In the evening we dined there with many of the clergy, and Lord Brougham Lord Dundonald, etc., I went down with the dean of Westminster, who was very agreeable and instructive. He and Dr. Watley have the simplicity of children, with an immense deal of knowledge, which they impart in the most pleasant way. Saturday, the 24th, we were to leave town for our first country excursion. We were invited by Dr. Hawtrey, the headmaster of Eton, to be present at the ceremonies accompanying the annual election of such boys on the foundation as are selected to go up to King's College, Cambridge, where they are also placed on a foundation. From reading Dr. Arnold's life you will have learned that the headmaster of one of these very great schools is no unimportant personage. Dr. Hawtrey has an income of six or seven thousand pounds. He is unmarried, but has two single sisters who live with him, and his establishment in one of the old college houses is full of elegance and comfort. We took an open travelling carriage with Imperials and drove down to Eton with our own horses, arriving about one o'clock. At two, precisely, the provost of King's College, Cambridge, was to arrive, and to be received under the old gateway of the cloister by the captain of the school with a Latin speech. After dinner there is a regatta among the boys, which is one of the characteristic and pleasing old customs. All the fashionables of London who have sons at Eton come down to witness their happiness, and the river-bank is full of gaiety. The evening finished with the most beautiful fireworks I ever saw, which lighted up the castle behind and were reflected in the Thames below, while the glancing oars of the young boatmen and the music of their band with a merry chime of bells from St. George's Chapel, above, all combined to give gaiety and interest to the scene. The next morning, Sunday, after an agreeable breakfast in the long, low-walled breakfast-room, which opens upon the flower-garden, we went to Windsor to worship in St. George's Chapel. The Queen's stall is rather larger than the others, and one is left vacant for the Prince of Wales. LONDON, JULY 29TH And now, with a new sheet, I must begin my account of Nunham. The Archbishop of York is the second son of Lord Vernon, but his uncle, Earl Harcourt, dying without children, left him all his estate, upon which he took the name of Harcourt. We arrived about four o'clock. The dinner was at half-past seven, and when I went down I found that the Duchess of Sutherland, Lady Caroline Levinson-Gower, Lord Kildare, and several of the sons and daughters of the archbishop. The dinner and evening passed off very agreeably. The Duchess is a most high-bred person, and thoroughly courteous. As we were going in or out of a room, instead of preceding me, which was her right, she always made me take her arm, which was a delicate way of getting over her precedence. At half-past nine, the next morning, we met in the drawing-room, when the archbishop led the way down to prayers. This was a beautiful scene, for he is now ninety, and to hear him read the prayers with a firm, clear voice, while his family and dependents knelt about him, was a pleasure never to be forgotten. At five I was to drive round the park with the archbishop himself in his open carriage. This drive was most charming. He explained everything, told me when such trees would be felled, and when certain tracts of underwood would be fit for cutting, how old the different sized deer were, in short, the whole economy of an English park every pretty point of view too he made me see and was as active and wide awake as if he were 30 rather than 90 the next morning after prayers and breakfast i took my leave end of letter 21 read by sibella denton all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information please visit librivox.org letter twenty two of letters from england eighteen forty six to eighteen forty nine by elizabeth davis bancroft read for LibriVox.org into the public domain letter to a h bishop's palace norwich august first my dear anne how i wish i could transport you to the spot where i am writing but if i could summon it before your actual vision you would take it for a dream or a romance So different is everything within the walls which enclose the precincts of an English cathedral from anything we can conceive on our side of the water. Some of the learned people and noblemen have formed an archaeological society for the study and preservation of the interesting architectural antiquities of the kingdom, and it is upon the occasion of the annual meeting of this society for a week at Norwich that the bishop has invited us to stay a few days at the palace and join them in their agreeable antiquarian excursions." We arrived on Friday at five o'clock, after a long, dull journey of five hours on the railway. Staying in the house are our friends, Mr. and Mrs. Milman, Lord Northampton and his son, Lord Elwyn Compton, and the Bishop's family, consisting of Mrs. Stanley and of two Miss Stanleys, agreeable and highly cultivated girls, and Mr. Arthur Stanley, the writer of Dr. Arnold's biography. After dinner company soon arrived. Among them were Mrs. Opie, who resides here she is a pleasing, lively old lady, in full Quaker dress. The most curious feature of the evening was a visit which the company paid to the cellar and kitchen, which were lighted up for the occasion. They were built by the old Norman bishops of the twelfth century, and had vaulted stone roofs as beautifully carved and ribbed as a church. The next day, Saturday, the antiquarians made a long excursion to hunt up some ruins, while the millmans, Mr. Stanley, and ourselves, went to visit the place of Lady Suffield about twelve miles distant, and which is the most perfect specimen of the Elizabethan style. Lady Suffield, herself, is as Elizabethan as her establishment. She is one of the oldest high Tory families, and so opposed to innovations of all sorts, that though her letters, which used to arrive at two before the opening of the railway two years ago, now arrive at seven in the morning, they are never allowed to be brought till the old hour. This morning, Mr. Bancroft and the rest are gone on an excursion to Yarmouth to see some ruins, while I remain here to witness the chairing of two new members of Parliament, who have just been elected. Of whom Lord Durrow, son of the Duke of Wellington, is one. End of letter twenty-two. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter twenty-three of Letters from England, eighteen forty-six to eighteen forty-nine, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to I.P.D. Audley End, October fourteenth, eighteen forty-seven. Dear Uncle, we are staying for a few days at Lord Baybrook's place, one of the most magnificent in England. But before I say a word about it, I must tell you of A's safe arrival and how happy I have been made by having him with me again. On Saturday the ninth we had the honor of dining with the Lord Mayor to meet the Duke of Cambridge, a fete so unlike anything else and accompanied by so many old and peculiar customs that I must describe it to you at full length. The mansion-house is in the heart of the city, and is very magnificent and spacious, the Egyptian hall, as the dining-room is called, being one of the noblest apartments I have seen. The guests were about two hundred and fifty in number, and were received by the Lady Mayoress sitting when dinner was announced the lord mayor went out first preceded by the sword-bearer and mace-bearer and all the insignia of office then came the duke of cambridge and the lady mayoress then mr bancroft and i together which is the custom at these great civic feasts we marched through the long gallery by the music of the band to the egyptian hall where two raised seats like thrones were provided for the lord mayor and mayoress at the head of the hall on the right hand of the lord mayor sat the duke of cambridge on a common chair for royalty yields entirely to the mayor on his own ground on the right of the duke of cambridge sat the mayoress elect for the present dignitaries go out of office on the first of november on the left hand of the present lady mayoress sat the lord mayor elect then i came with my husband on my left hand in very conjugal style There were three tables the whole length of the hall, and that at which we were placed went across the head. When we were placed, the herald stands behind the Lord Mayor and cries, My lords, ladies, and gentlemen, pray silence for grace. Then the chaplain, in his gown, goes behind the Lord Mayor and says, Grace. After the second course, two large gold cups, nearly two feet high, are placed before the Mayor and Mayoress. The herald then cries with a loud voice, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Cambridge, the American Minister, the Lord Chief Baron, etc., etc., enumerating about a dozen of the most distinguished guests, and, ladies and gentlemen all, the Lord Mayor and Mayoress do bid you most heartily welcome and invite you to drink in a loving cup. Whereupon the Mayor and Mayoress rise, and each turn to their next neighbor, who take off the cover while they drink. After my right-hand neighbor, the Lord Mayor-elect, put one on the cover, he turns to me and says, please take off the cover, which I do, and hold it while he drinks. Then I replace the cover and turn round to Mr. Bancroft, who rises and performs the same office for me while I drink. Then he turns to his next neighbor, who takes off the cover for him. I have not felt so solemn since I stood up to be married, as when Mr. Bancroft and I were standing up alone together, the rest of the company looking on, I, with this great heavy gold cup in my hand, so heavy that I could scarcely lift it to my mouth with both hands, and he with the cover before me, with rather a mischievous expression in his face. Then came two immense gold platters filled with rose-water, which were also passed round. These gold vessels were only used by the persons at the head-table. The other guests were served with silver cups. When the dessert and the wine are placed on the table, the herald says, My lords, ladies, and gentlemen, please to charge your glasses. After we duly charge our glasses, the herald cries, Lords, ladies, and gentlemen, pray silence for the Lord Mayor. He then rises and proposes the first toast, which is, of course, always the Queen. After a time came the American Minister, who was obliged to rise up at my elbow and respond. We got home just after twelve. And now let me try to give you some faint idea of Audley End, which is by far the most magnificent house I have yet seen. It was built by the Earl of Suffolk, son of the duke of norfolk who was beheaded in elizabeth's reign for high treason upon the side of an abbey the lands of which had been granted by the crown to that powerful family one of the earls of suffolk dying without sons the earldom passed into another branch and the barony and estate of howard de walden came into the female line in course of time a lord howard de walden dying without a son his title also passed into another family but his estate went to his nephew lord baybrook the father of the present lord. Lady Baybrook is the daughter of the Marquise of Cornwallis, and granddaughter of our American Lord Cornwallis. The house is of the Elizabethan period, and is one of the best preserved specimens of that style, but of its vast extent and magnificence I can give you no idea. We arrived about five o'clock, and were ushered through an immense hall of carved oak, hung with banners up a fine staircase to the grand saloon, where we were received by the host and hostess. Now, of this grand saloon I must try to give you a conception. It was, I should think, from seventy-five to one hundred feet in length. The ceiling overhead was very rich with hanging corbels, like stalactites, and the entire walls were paneled, with a full-length family portrait in each panel, which was arched at the top, so that the whole wall was composed of these round-top pictures with rich gilding between. Notwithstanding its vast size, the sofas and tables were so disposed all over the apartment as to give it the most friendly, warm, and social aspect. Lady Baybrook herself ushered me to my apartments, which were the state-rooms. First came Mr. Bancroft's dressing-table, where was a blazing fire. Then came the bedroom, with the state-bed of blue and gold, covered with embroidery, and with the arms and coronet of Howard de Walden. The walls were hung with crimson and white damask, and the sofas and chairs also, and it was surrounded by pictures, among others a full length of Queen Charlotte, just opposite the foot of the bed, which always saluted me every morning when I awoke, with her fan, her hoop, and her deep ruffles. My dressing-room, which was on the opposite side from Mr. Bancroft's, was a perfect gem. It was painted by the famous Rebecco, who came over from Italy to ornament so many of the great English houses at one time. The whole ceiling and walls were covered with beautiful designs and with gilding, and a beautiful recess for a couch was supported by fluted gilded columns, the architraves and mouldings of the doors were gilt, and the panels of the doors were filled with Rebecco's beautiful designs. The chairs were of light blue embroidered with thick heavy gold, and all this bearing the stamp of antiquity was a thousand times more interesting than mere modern splendor. In the center of the room was a toilette of white muslin, universal here, and on it a gilt dressing-table, which gave pretty effect to the whole. I sat at dinner between Lord Baybrook and Sir John Boileau, and found them both very agreeable. The dining-room is as magnificent as the other apartments. The ceiling is in the Elizabethan style, covered with figures, and the walls, white and gold panelling, hung with full-length family portraits, not set into the wall like the saloon, but in frames, In the evening the young people had a round game at cards, and the elder ones seemed to prefer talking to a game of whist. The ladies brought down their embroidery or netting. At eleven a tray with wine and water is brought in, and a quantity of bed candlesticks, and everybody retires when they like. The next morning the guests assembled at half-past nine in the great gallery, which leads to the chapel to go in together to prayers. The chapel is really a beautiful little piece of architecture, with a vaulted roof and windows of painted glass on one side is the original cast of the large monument to lord cornwallis our lord which is in westminster abbey after breakfast we passed a couple of hours in going all over the house which is in perfect keeping in every part we returned to the library a room as splendid as the saloon only instead of pictured panels it was surrounded by books in beautiful gilt bindings in the immense bay window was a large louis quatorze table round which the ladies all placed themselves at their embroidery though i preferred looking over curious illuminated missiles etc etc the next day was the meeting of the county agricultural society at the hour appointed we all repaired to the ground where the prizes were to be given out lord baybrook made first a most paternal and interesting address which showed me the most favourable view the relation between the noble and the lower class in england a relation which must depend much on the personal character of the lord of the manor first came prizes to ploughmen then the ploughboys then the shepherds then to such peasants as had reared many children without aid then to women who had been many years in the same farmer's service etc etc a clock was awarded to a poor man and his wife who had reared six children and buried seven without aid from the parish the rapture with which mr and mrs flitton and the whole six children gazed on this clock an immense treasure for a peasant's cottage was both comic and affecting. The next morning, we made our adieus to our kind host and hostess and set off for London, accompanied by Sir John Tyrrel, Major Beresford, and young Mister Boileau. End of letter twenty-three, read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Hello and welcome to Queen V: the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V: the life of of Queen Victoria. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen B, the life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.